Hello and welcome to the Leaders Team podcast, brought to you by the Leaders Team at Twinkle. We discuss all things teaching and leading, and we amplify the voices of people in and out of the profession. You may have noticed that we've changed our name. We're no longer talking teachers, but don't worry, we still have the same great content. There's just a few changes here and there. So wherever you're listening from, we hope you enjoy this episode. Hello, I'm Emily Diel. In this episode, I speak to Aisha Thomas, a former assistant principal in a school in Bristol, and most recently founder of Representation Matters, whose mission it is to challenge the lack of representation and inequality in our current education system. The idea is that I don't want anybody to go through society, to go through their educational experience thinking that they don't belong. So the premise is belonging. Belonging, connection and understanding. In 2017, the Runnymede Trust published a report which highlighted the lack of black, Asian and minority ethnic teachers in Bristol. Aisha was asked to do a documentary for BBC Inside Out West to explore this very issue. After interviewing other teachers and realising there was more that needed to be done to raise awareness of the lack of representation in education, Aisha, along with Lana Crosby, started Representation Matters. Now, I've known Aisha for a good few years and I've seen the incredible work that she's doing. So I knew it was vital we had to get her as a guest on the Leaders Team podcast. This is a really powerful episode. I know you'll enjoy it. And most importantly, I know you'll be inspired to make change happen. Welcome, Aisha, to the Leaders Team podcast. How are you doing today? I'm really well and thank you for having me. I feel so honoured. I really appreciate it. Oh, bless you. I've been wanting to get you on here for quite a while. We we met in Bristol many years ago, actually, now. It feels like feels like not that long ago, but it's quite a while now because I've been out of Bristol yeah. for a while. And we met in Bristol on a course. I saw something in you that I was just like, I need to, I need to know that girl. I need to stay in touch with her. Um, <laughs> and you've been on quite a journey since then, haven't you? It's been massive and I didn't realize how important that course was. Mm. I look back now and think about the work we were doing around PSHE and I think about how fundamental is that now into to inclusion mm. and the way in which the world is changing, the way it's hurting and the way we're trying to heal mm. is fundamental, not just for the children, but for us as adults. So that was definitely a pinnacle moment for my journey. Yeah, it was it was a really interesting because for people who were wondering what we're talking about, we went on a PSHE course uh, to kind of get a certificate in the subject, um, and there weren't many many accreditations accreditations. I don't know how to say that word. Yeah. Um, and in in the subject, and so we kind of had a quite an intensive time looking at how to teach PSHE, and um, yeah, so that's how we met. That was uh, that was our little kind of beginning of our journey together. And um, I was just interested to start off with asking you kind of how you got into teaching uh, in general. Like, what was it that sparked it off for you? Why did you become a teacher? To be frank, it was never ever ever i'm going to emphasize that <laughs> something i wanted to do the reason being is that my mum is um or was a primary school teacher 
So I spent much of my childhood being dragged from primary school, and I'm saying dragged, from primary <laughs> school to primary school, um, meeting lots of teachers and actually watching their trauma. Mm. And it's not because I want to start from a negative place. So please don't see it from that perspective. But I, I saw how hard these people were working. Mm. And I saw the, the energy and the emphasis that goes into educating children. And I always talk about the fact that I don't believe there's a better profession in the world because I believe as educators, as teachers, we teach everyone everything. Mm. It has to start with us. But there is such an undervalue of the educator within the UK. Mm. And I have a massive problem with that. Yeah. And so because it's so underrated as a profession, it therefore doesn't get the respect and the, the support it needs. And we began to see little twinkles of that during the pandemic. And, you know, families having to look after their own children and educate them themselves and almost beginning to realize for the first time how important the role was. And so for me, from the top, I have to say to you that I totally salute every educator, Mm. those who from the past, the present and those who are yet to become. And even for those of us who have left education or the traditional classroom, we never stop teaching and it becomes a vocation for life and Mm. not just a job role. But my actual transition was interesting because I am a law graduate. I was very much going to be this, you know, exclusive lawyer traveling the world. I wanted to be the rich auntie. That was me. I had it all planned out. But what became quite apparent was that the theory didn't match the practice for me. Mm. And many things changed my career pathway. But I, I wouldn't be honest if I didn't say that the significance of doing pro bono work was massive. And I spent time with a young man in particular who was in prison and I was doing some volunteer work with the Prince's Trust. And in one of our chance conversations, he just made a really throwaway remark. And he said, you know, perhaps if you were my teacher today, I wouldn't be in prison. Oh, wow. And I didn't get what he meant. To be honest, I was a little bit annoyed at the time. I was (laughs) like, no, I'm going to be a lawyer. What do you mean? And I didn't quite process it in that moment. And I wish I could find him now because I don't think... He understands how much he's changed my life. But at the time he was saying, you know, you've walked in here as a black woman and I'm thinking, are you here to visit somebody? I'm not looking at you as anybody in authority. You know, he said, everyone around here is white. Mm. All of the, you know, the people he's got to work with, the governors, everything. And he said, I don't see that representation. And then he talked about, you know, media and sport and crime being the only pathways for him. So it's not just about the lack of representation, it was the over-representation in particular fields. Mm. And we talked more and more, and unfortunately, we only had so many sessions with young people, so I never, ever got to catch up with him again. But what he made me realise is that I was in a profession where I would be contributing to somebody going behind the bars, and what could I do differently if I could infiltrate their experience at an earlier point? So that's when I began to slowly transition my way Mm from law to education and I started off with organizations if you remember like connections oh yeah and um old school connections mm. so that was great I was an engagement worker you know I spent time working with organizations like Pearson Education and Xenos and I began to transition until I got to the school that I most recently worked at which was an inner city secondary school in Bristol and it just made me realize that there's an infiltration there's a disruption that has to happen in the lives of our children at an earlier point which will absolutely determine their trajectory. And that is why I transitioned into teaching, not because of the job role, but because of the life chances that I could improve if I made a difference to my life, I can make a difference to theirs. Wow, that's incredible. Like, 
going from like the wannabe Olivia Pope, you know, and scandal, literally, yeah, and then to actually literally into, into teaching because of that passion in you, and I see that in the work that you do. I saw it from the minute I met you because there was something oh. that you because you you were, you were on the phone to kind of school and you were there and you were involved, and I remember talking to you a bit about what you did in school, and you were at the time you were an assistant principal there, weren't you? Yes. Um, did mm-hmm. you always want to be on the senior leadership team? Was that something you always no. kind of... <laughs> no, again, no. I'm telling you a lot of no's here. No, I absolutely had no desire at that point to be a senior leader. But what I realised was where the power was. Mm. And that's me just being completely honest yep. with you. The power dynamic to make the change I wanted to make in education, I knew I needed to be in that room. And that room almost felt like this kind of war room where all the decisions were being made about the future of those children. I couldn't do it from the outside. Yeah, I couldn't. I had to penetrate it. And I guess from my perspective, a lot of the lenses I would, you know, I really wanted to support were not were not kind of replicated or or existing in those spaces. Mm. At the time, there were no other black members of senior leadership team. Wow. So for me, it was. I needed to be in that room. We were in a school where 85% of the population are from black communities. And yet there was not one black senior leader. And I'm not saying as a white person, you can't empathize or you can't have understanding, but there's something about fighting for the understanding of those who look and sound like you. Yeah. And I'd grown up like these children. Mm. I'd lived in social housing. I'd had their experiences. I'd had their life choices and pathways. And so I was determined that I had to be a senior leader because I wanted to infiltrate the structure. I wanted it to look different, but I also wanted to challenge what that young man had said, which is perhaps if you would be my teacher. I have no doubt the impact I had of being a serving senior leader who was black from the local community in that school Mm. day in, day out, but not just for black children, but for white children too. I changed the culture. Mm. I shifted their vision of what leadership looked like in education. And that's powerful. That is that is powerful just talking to you and we're going to get into a little bit about kind of what the work you do now um in a bit because when I lived in Bristol I saw it I I moved to Bristol from small town northeast right so even in the small town northeast there was not a lot of diversity up there so when I moved to Bristol I considered that to be a multicultural city and because of the, the what I saw around me, you only have to walk from one end of Gloucester Road to the other to experience a whole yeah. range of cultures that you go from. And I was really surprised when we talked uh, and when I saw the work that you were doing about the lack of black teachers in Bristol. And yeah. let's talk a bit about the Runnymede Trust Report because like I say, Bristol is is known to be a multicultural place. The Runnymede Trust ran a report in 2017, didn't they? And they highlighted that there was a lack of what they call BME BME teachers. Now, we had this conversation just now about whether I should refer to it as black teachers or BME teachers. Let's talk about that first. Yeah. So it's an interesting one. I get this question all the time. 
so what should I call you? And the simplest answer I want to say is Aisha, because that's yeah. me. But I think we as adults, we as individuals, we as children, as human beings have this desire to put people in boxes because somehow it makes our lives a little bit easier. If I can group you, if I can define you, I can create an environment of how safe I feel around you. I'm almost categorizing you in the system. Mm. And so when I think about language and all the nuances of language and how powerful it can be, simply defining someone's racial experience and how they identify is crucial to their individual self-actualization now when we take terms like being simply we're saying anybody who isn't white british i'm going to put you all in that bucket yeah now when we actually break that down that's ridiculous because Mm. the idea is that my experience wouldn't be the same as someone who was polish for example that's right and racialized as white by their skin tone and yet they would not be in the same category as someone who's white british Mm. and yet their experience in life would be much closer so the reality is for me is why can we not ask if we can take the time to begin to change our language around pronouns why can we not take the time to ask people how do you racialize Would you like me to refer to you as black, for example? Would you like me to refer to you as global majority? Because actually, even in the very language of BAME and BME, we talk about a minoritized group. Yeah. What does that do to that, your psyche, when I keep telling you you're the minority, you're minimal, there are not many of you. I'm othering you constantly Mm. in my language. And yet we know globally, people of color, you know, are the majority That's right. across the globe. And so what I think is important is it's less about the acronyms. We could talk about POC, people of color, BIPOC, black indigenous people of color. We could talk about BAME, BME. I can even talk about how I was challenged by a fellow black person who said, don't call me black, call me African mm. or call me Nigerian, because that's how I identify my blackness is something that has been constructed by the Western world to put me in a system of hierarchy. So I think there's so much nuance to it, but I think the simplest way to deal with it is just to ask. Yeah. Allow people the space to self-actualize. You know, we, we laughed and joked a little bit before, but, you know, there isn't that same equivalent for whiteness. No, there isn't right. me going, you know, you're a, you're a WM or you're yeah. a W. We wouldn't, we wouldn't say it. No. We would think it was absolutely disgusting to use that term, and yet we do it in reverse. Yeah. So I get that we're in education. I get we need to have data and baseline. And so we will categorize people if only because the system needs it. But I think when we're talking about interpersonal relationships, we can take the time to ask people who they are and how they identify. Mm. And that's a simple question as how would you like me to racialize you? And it only takes a moment. Yeah, fantastic. And I, we had a conversation before this podcast, which this is what we were talking about. And when I kind of looked at it and thought, well, yeah, we, I don't refer to myself as, you know, white all the time. And I always felt uncomfortable about using the acronym BME because it felt like, like you say, I was othering people. I was yeah. making, a, 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 making someone feel like they were other to the rest of of the the population and never really I never felt comfortable about it but and I feel like now is the time thanks to lots going on in the world in the press and whatever now is the time for us to start getting this right and we don't really have any excuses anymore so in this podcast when I refer to black teachers we're okay with that yeah and that for me works perfectly great so the Runnymede Trust Report, when I come back to this, was done in 2017 and it highlighted that there was a lack of black teachers in Bristol, right? And you mm. got approached to do a BBC documentary about it. Can you tell us a little bit more about this? 
Yeah, of course. So it was really interesting. So actually in the report, they do talk about it in a wider term. So they talk about Black, Asian, minority, mm -hmm. ethnic. But what we wanted to do more specifically in Bristol was really judge what that meant. Because again, figures can be dis distorted when you use acronyms and you use grouping. Yeah. And actually the percentage was 4.4% of um, BAME, for want of a better way of putting it in this particular context, of uh, teachers within education. But what we wanted to do is actually look more specifically at black teachers within right. Bristol. And we focused primarily on the state secondary schools because there were 19 at the time. And we really wanted to kind of uncover whether or not the distortion was in the acronym BAME or whether or not we could actually hone in on a particular group who we know disproportionately are often affected by the education system when we looked at things like the exclusion rates and the mm. attainment rates and whether there was a correlation or a relationship between the two. So what was quite interesting then as a result of that is that we then found that there were 26 black teachers, but I must go a little bit further for you with that and say, of those 26 black teachers, some of them were actually dual heritage. So actually only had one black parent. Right. So if we had gone specifically to two black parents, I think the number would have been even less. Yeah. But that was what we were working with. And of those 19 schools that we actually spoke to, nine of which had no black teachers at all. Although the population of black and Asian students within Bristol was near on 30% within that age category. Wow. So you begin to see the disparity there and it begins to widen and grow. And you begin to then start questioning yourself more and more about, well, what is this relationship between race and how people are racialized and racism and the impact not just on black children, but white children too. Yeah. And what that report began to make us realize, and certainly the questioning was that people didn't have an awareness of it. They knew there were a few, but didn't know there were so few, as you saw in the documentary. But also it began to question why. Mm. What are the reasons that this is happening and what can we do to address it? And one of the key questions was, well, they're not applying, you know, um, so, so what do we do? And the reality is, which and, and I know we'll talk about this in a moment, but I just want to reference it. I then came up with a project quite soon after called Beyond the 26. Mm. Because I wanted to highlight the question isn't why are they not applying or they don't exist? They are very much there. But are they being capped in terms of progress? Because you were seeing lots of people of colour, lots of black people in job roles that were in education, but they were not in the role of the teacher. Why was that? Yeah. And so that whole campaign was about highlighting all of the people in education who would identify as black or a person of color who were not having their voices heard. Mm. And we then saw lots and lots of people. So what started off as 26 within a day or two was double that figure. Right. Yeah. And so what it provided us the opportunity was to look deeper, mm. put the magnifying glass up and up some serious questions, which is, well, why are they not represented? What are the boundaries? What are the barriers? What are the difficulties? And what are we doing genuinely in education to make a shift? Do we even really care? Because if we do, let's put our money where our mouths are and really show what we're doing to make a difference. Yeah, absolutely. And I've got to, you know, I've got to hold my hands up and, and, and kind of say that it wasn't until I started following the work that you were doing that I realized that this was such a problem. And yeah. um, what what kind of things did you what did you identify then as being the problems or and, and what were your ideas as solutions? 
Yeah. So there was a massive spectrum of difference. Mm. And I think we have to be honest that there isn't a one size fits all. So some of the the case studies we did and some of the research, some of the conversations were were very varying and very nuanced. So, you know, you'd have some people because it was their legacy and experience of their grandparents. So you've got people who had very much had grandparents who came to this country who saw signs that said no blacks, no Irish, no cats, no dogs. And that was their lived experience. They had those educational experiences where there was them and us. They went to school and they watched films like Roots. And, you know, they very much were aware of their blackness within education. Mm. You know, there's been lots of BBC documentaries about the way black children were treated as subnormal. And as a result of that, they were put into um, categories of special educational Mm. needs because of their race and their behaviours were deemed to be to be considered to be of a special educational need lens. And so you had people who had those experiences, which if you know anything about epigenetics, this idea of transferred trauma that trauma was being transferred and transferred and transferred for generations. And so they were raising their children with this disconnect, Mm. this disconnect with education and experience and, and how they felt about their experiences. We also have the social disadvantage um, financially. Education's expensive. It's hard to train to become a teacher. It's not cheap. You've got to have two degrees. Mm. And the reality is how many people can afford to do that? Yeah. Where do you get the money from? Where where do those resources come from? It's extremely especially, difficult. Especially now that. as the fees are extortionate to go to university. You know, back when right. back when we went to university, it wasn't like that. It was it was a lot it's a lot cheaper. cheaper. But now if we're talking about, you know, we want the future generation to XYZ. Yeah. A lot of them are choosing not to because who's got nine grand a, a year? Exactly. Yeah which is ridiculous right mm. and so when you when you go beyond that but then you also have got people's experiences so this is where you look at recruitment and retention so the racism that they were experiencing in the school so they were having people who were going through teacher training and then having such a racist experience that they were leaving mm. as quickly as they were going in so we were bleeding teachers through the system so actually from a numbers wise they were going in but they were coming out as quick as they were going in yeah. you know life shelf of like three years mm you know, getting to NQT status and wanting to go because of their experiences within the system, mm. whether that was um, peer-to-peer bullying, whether that was parent bullying, whether it was subject to the school and the postcode that they were in, in terms of their education and, and the dynamics that you would experience. So that was there too. There were ceilings, ceilings being um, put upon people. So a lot of the teachers we spoke to, and you, we refer to Shauna in the actual documentary, trained in Bristol and then went to London. Right. Because she knew her opportunities as a black person would be greater. London, Nottingham, Wolverhampton, Birmingham, Manchester, because the diversity was much better than what they would experience in Bristol. That's really interesting because, as I said before, as an outsider to Bristol, I looked at that city as somewhere that I thought was well represented. But I don't want to diverge too much off the point, but many people would have seen Bristol in the press recently with the whole history of Bristol coming to light, you know, particularly yeah. most famously the Colston um, statue that was kind yes. of pulled down and then it all created some debates on either side as to whether that was right or wrong. Uh, and actually what I saw was an uprising of um, like a movement of kind of like, well, hang yeah. on a minute, 
you know, we've just realized who Colston is and what he did. Mm-hmm. And look, if you go in Bristol anywhere, it's Colston this, it's Colston that. There's yeah, even a, get away from yeah it. a school named after him, a whole big shopping center named after him. And oh no, that's the mm-hmm. Cabot one. But, um, but anyway, his name is everywhere. And it kind of opened up a whole new conversation as to is this right I actually saw a um, petition from someone in my school that I taught and the school that I taught in was very different to the school you taught in mine was a very uh, white demographic um, majority and actually it's good to know though and I think you'll be interested they started a big petition to decolonize the curriculum uh, Mm. at that school um so it, it it did definitely spark things. And I do, I do think in young people, because they're like, you know, the, the activism in young people at the minute, I, I find really inspiring. Um, oh, yeah. And so, yeah, Bristol has kind of like a whole history of stuff that people I don't think realized. And you've got people on one side of the argument going, yeah, absolutely. It's right. Let's let's pull it all mm. down. Let's get rid of these names and and, and let's be more representative then you've got the other argument of oh it's part of our history and you know we should leave it be and whatever what's your thoughts on it so I find that quite interesting and um I saw a tweet on this and I apologize for not being able to credit the author of the tweet in this moment but he 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 put a tweet out that said the problem with um slavery and enslavement is taught as black people's history and not white people's yeah and i thought how powerful Mm. is that because the reality is the reason often we don't want to talk about it because the othering suggests that actually this is a black people problem we don't want to talk about it get over it It was 300 400 years ago why are we still having these discussions but if we had taught it from a different perspective from the perspective and the understanding of the impact the damage the beneficiary that you know knowing that african people particularly west african people were people who had it enshrined in law that they could be subhuman and they could be commodities and property just so we could have enslavement mm. if we were honest about the relationship that you know the uk has had that actually the root the start of this was here not in the Americas here, being honest about that and having that grappling with that truth and that reality, you know, knowing that up until 2015, you know, the treasury then tweeted how, you know, we've just paid off the debt, which debt? The debt of reparations to whom? To the slave owners? So to know that myself, I have contributed to tax and national insurance as a working employee, but some of my money has gone to paying reparations to the very people who enslaved my ancestors wow so not only do i have to live with that legacy i have to know my own hard working coins have paid back the people that enslaved my people mm. and that was celebrated as something we should be proud of so when we know it's so deep rooted it's the lack of understanding which is what gets in our way because i think we are taught history from such a lens that we don't really grapple with the injustice that actually a set of people have gone through yeah we don't give it the the understanding and the empathy and even the recognition that it requires for us to really be honest about what black people have been through we accept slavery as almost an acceptable part of history it happened get over it really Because those systems and those structures, even if you want to refer to something that happened 400 years ago, 
it is manifested in today's society. That's why 13 times more likely as a black man to be stopped is why 52% of the population in prisons is people, is young boys of color, 37% of which are black boys. They don't make up that population of young people. Why women are four times more likely to, to die in childbirth if they're black. These are the same systems. Yeah. So if there isn't racism, if it isn't still manifesting itself, why is there such a disparity? But it's what we call tolerable racism that we can live with. Yeah, yeah, I hear Why? You. Because yeah. it doesn't affect the majority. Mm. And and history is only written by, I suppose, what they would consider the winners, right? So we only hear the, right. we only hear the stories of the winners, and the rest is eradicated because it doesn't suit the narrative. If we want the narrative Absolutely. to be equal, then that's never going to work because we want a winner in every story, right? So when right. when we look in history and we see, like, even I was teaching music, you know, I was a head of music for a long time, and. I, I really struggled with teaching st subjects like the blues and the history of yeah. even just the history of pop music, you know, it is yeah. a, deeply deep. Well, it comes from black culture, mm -hmm. but it's written in a very different way and it's put in a very yeah. different way. And even to the point where, you know, you get to kind of the sixties uh, and, and, and the, even the Rolling Stones are taking the songs of the, the black people in America and making it yes. their own and bringing it them to them. And that's just been repeated and repeated and repeated through history in every aspect. And we get the stories yeah. that are the ones that suit the narrative. But also we reframe it in a way that makes it palatable to us. So I recently watched um, Bob Marley's Get Up Stand Up in, in the West End. And it was so interesting because um, walking in that space, black people were the minority um, going to watch the show. But what was quite interesting and what I found very difficult is that you had what I would say was um, a group of very you know, white middle class, quite wealthy people in the West End standing up and singing you know from the pits of their stomach redemption song and get up stand up and I couldn't help but think do you know what you're singing yeah I hear you on that definitely and uh, it's interesting as well because when Hamilton came out there was a big thing about the fact that the that the cast was all people of color it was written by uh you know someone of color and that it was all kind of about hip-hop as well as the music so it's supposed to be an inviting thing but then they put it on the west end and they priced the tickets at over 150 pounds each so like so who can afford that? Who can, <laughs> you know i tried to take a group of kids to go and see it and i couldn't because it was too expensive yeah. so i love the fact Absolutely. that now they can see it on the disney channel or whatever but that's not the same experience as going to a west no. end show and it's really interesting that you brought that up because it's priced out like even yes. i can't afford it so how can i expect someone from a single parent family you know, in social housing to be able to go and afford to see themselves represented on the Western stage. Absolutely. And and so, you know, when people talk about racist structures and where it's perpetuated, often people look to the white working class and kind of almost try and pit those groups together. But actually it's it's the white middle and we have mm. to understand the power in the white middle class to to separate people and create division and not realize the power in those structures. And we see that played out in education every yeah. single day it's even down to the choices of books that they study though isn't it there's a whole big debate Absolutely. about of mice and men and yes. the language that's used in of mice and men and whether that's okay and I hear a lot of talk about that on places like Twitter and everyone's got an yeah. opinion on it and it's really really interesting and it takes me on to 
the work that you're doing now with representation matters because you set that up what year was it that you set that up so it's so interesting representation matters as a as an entity as a project as an idea is actually over 10 years old okay but it being called representation matters and it manifesting itself as a company it was launched in 2020 um but i would say that the the energy really came after 2018 when I began to do the work with the BBC. And what's quite interesting, it's funny, many of the people who I almost begged to listen to me in 2017, 2018, now are, oh, Aisha, please come and work with us and come and talk to us. And it's really hard because there's a bit of me that's saying, oh, are you talking to me now because it's trending? Are you talking to me now because it's popular? Mm. But what about when race is no longer front and centre, when we're no longer interested in the, the, the billion dollar industry that diversity and inclusion is, mm. will you still want me? Will you still be interested in the work that I'm doing? Because what I'm trying to do is long lasting. It's about really changing people for the future. Well, it's shifting the culture, massive. isn't it? It's shifting the culture of education is is really the goal. It's so that you don't have to keep talking about it. And yes, e- even though you will be keeping to talk about it, you will find that people will hopefully come in line and come alongside you absolutely and so that you don't have to keep introducing this to everybody yeah as a concept yeah (laughs) as an idea so tell us what is representation matters what is your vision what is the the drive behind the company so it's quite interesting so you know the launch of it really when you think about my TEDx talk and I talked about how important representation is within education the idea is that I don't want anybody to go through society to go through their educational experience thinking that they don't belong so the premise is belonging belonging connection and understanding you talk about Maslow's hierarchy of needs from the basic from the bottom foundation I need to be able to self-actualize. And so the whole point of representation matters is actually challenging the leaders, the CEOs, the principals. And I'm saying, until you change the education system within your power, you will continue to have children and staff who will go through their experience with you and feel that they don't belong. Children will continue to not attain. Children will continue to not self-actualize. And we will continue to put out children into a global society where there is them, and us Mm. and so what we go in and do is we really shake it up everything from inspiring keynotes to get people thinking training for staff to really encourage them to understand where their gaps in learning and understanding is but equally coaching schools through the journey so that they really have someone holding their hand through not just creating an action plan or you know just ticking a few boxes but actually a strategy on how you change every aspect of your school to really be inclusive Mm, great it's so important and it's so needed and on the kind of in a different aspect of the spectrum of representation that was something that I was very passionate about as a female gay openly gay teacher I wanted to represent that for the children that couldn't see themselves represented in that area of their lives absolutely and it was uh it was a you know it was how I dressed it was how I wore my hair and I know you know I'm just one of those that don't conform and I I refuse to Uh, and you know I got some stick about it I got comments here and there uh but I always stuck and I always made sure that there were there was opportunities for young people to come and talk to me or reach out to me if that was what they needed to talk about and yes it was on a very small scale but it's about like you say it's about making sure that no one goes through their educational journey and thinking they're not important or they're not represented and you have the um 
you have the One Bristol curriculum as part of one of your projects. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, so that's really interesting when I think about One Bristol curriculum, because that also started around the time of the BBC documentary. And it was because the Runway Trust also referred to the strand of curriculum and said that the curriculum wasn't representative for all children. Mm. That again, what it did is it perpetuates the same ideologies and the same cycles within the education system. And so what One Bristol curriculum hopes to do is provide almost an umbrella organisation that is allowing practitioners who have real lived experiences to meet with educators who have a gap in knowledge and experience and fusing them together so what i did is i wrote a particular program and mine is quite unique so it's one of many programs under the umbrella and mine was actually called what's in a name now what's a name is an interesting one because it was really born out of an incidental conversation with my neighbor so my neighbor is called um whisper and for years and years i genuinely thought it was a nickname like a pet name because we have those in caribbean culture and then he explained to me no in zimbabwe we name our children after what we want them to become and he was intentionally called whispering as a result of his grandfather wanting a quiet child oh wow and so that was quite interesting <laughs> mm. right and so then it really pushed me to learn and understand so much more about names and what names meant and this idea that actually if there are children called Precious and Hope and Millionaire, because that's what in Zimbabwe they want their children to become, what does that mean for us in the UK where we have Anglo-Saxon names and we're not allowing children's names to really come to the forefront? Because we all have a name. We all have a story. We all have something behind us. And that also creates bias and division. I was recently in Specsavers, um, and it's quite interesting. Uh, the person on the desk was talking to me and she said, oh, like, Snip sister, you know, um, you know, you're a Muslim. And I said, oh, what would make you think that? She said, oh, but your name's Aisha and that's a Muslim name and that's Prophet Muhammad's wife. Mm, no. Um, the reason I'm called Aisha is because my mum likes Stevie Wonder and that's the name of his daughter. <laughs> is it it's lovely? really that simple. <laughs> yeah, literally. But the reality is we make assumptions all the time Yeah. because even a name will prevent us engaging with a person because of wow. what the connotations of that name mean. Wow. So, I go out of my way, as you know, um, to phonetically spell my name for people mm. to understand. I go out of my way to really get to know who people are, even abbreviations. You know, me deciding I'm going to call you M or Emily, you might have a negative bias to, to M. There may have been something that happened in your history. I don't know. But the reality is I need to get to know you. And so what What's in the Name was about was allowing young people to see the African diaspora and the importance of names in African culture, but allowing them to connect with their names, wherever they came from in the world and what it meant about their self-actualization. And then it grew. So then we started doing things like what's in food, what's in clothes, what's in music, what's even in your local community. And it just got people talking. Mm. And I think if ever, people always say, well, what's the solution, Aisha? It's conversation. Yeah. Let's have conversation. Let's talk to each other. Let's learn more because we gain so much more in the cultural understanding and connection than we do in the culture fit. I think and that we is, do that too often. That is so important because I think people don't talk about it because they're scared to get it wrong or people Absolutely. don't people don't talk about it because they're scared of offending or they just don't know enough about it and I've seen recently on and I don't know if it's a good thing but I think it is a good thing I've seen recently the Google advert saying it's okay to ask yeah and 
I, you know, it's encouraging, isn't it? Conversations between people from different backgrounds, different whatever, to just say, can you just tell me about this? Because I need to know about it. Because if we don't know about it, how are we going to progress? Exactly. And that's the very thing that we were talking about. And I think it is okay to ask, however, respect boundaries. Yes. So I don't mind you asking. Ask me a thousand questions. It doesn't bother me. And I think this is where organizations have to be careful, though. So I'm working with an organization at the moment, and they've got 92 staff, of three of which are people of color. I said to them very clearly, as it might not be okay to ask. Because for those three people, we need to have a separate conversation. Mm. Are you okay when we start this work on anti-racist practice for you to have questions posed to you? And if not, we need to be honest about that and provide someone paid to be that person for you. Because what you're not going to do is exploit someone's lived experience. You might be okay to ask on occasion, but you might not want it every day. Where do they understand where the boundaries lie? Where do they start and where do they finish? So I think it's... It's okay to have conversation and exploration, but we have to be mindful of boundaries and the labor in having to always be the one of. Yeah, and I absolutely empathize with that because as pro- some often the only gay woman teacher in a, in a school, I would often be the one that got asked to do X, Y, Z, lead the pride assemblies talk about lgbt history month and that is um i shouldn't have to do that no (laughs) you know and and i think when i was saying about it's okay to ask i think it's when you have a relationship with that person you you know agreed yeah you don't go up to someone in the street and just say can you tell me about what la 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 you know it's not um necessarily that it's more about like you say respecting the boundaries and not expecting these people to just always be the experts on informing you you can go and do your own research like if you need to find out stuff you don't know about stuff go and read about it go and find out and spend time uh you know making time to to make that happen for yourself so that you can inform other people you don't have to then go to every black person and ask can I ask you this can I ask you that you can actually inform you know and it's the same uh that I've had is is like we don't have to go through like me having to come out every time someone asks me, am I gay or not, right? That's tiring. Yeah, you wouldn't ever go to anyone, are you um, heterosexual? Yeah, you, exactly. You, you expect them to, and then, oh, can you tell me what that feels like? Yeah. You would, it seems so ludicrous the other yeah. way around, and yet yeah. we have these unrealistic expectations from those who are othered, or, you know, for want of a better phrase, at this particular moment, of a minoritized group in an organization. Yeah. And that's what we do. But also it is disrespectful to you, for example, if I'm talking to you as a gay woman and saying, well, talk to me about the trans experience. But it's not the same. No, exactly. Oh, yeah, but you're all in the same group, aren't you? Yeah, exactly. No, we might have an acronym that is holding us together because the world struggle with the idea of us being any more than this acronym. Mm. So, yes. But actually being a non-binary woman, being some, or not, non, I just said it wrong, being non-binary and not identifying yes. as a woman may be a very different experience to someone who's currently transitioning to someone who is gay. Yeah. All of these experiences are very different. So even though you might be able to talk to a similar lived experience, it probably isn't going to be the same. No, you're dead right. Spot on there. Absolutely. And uh yeah, thank you for that because that's that's really really helpful. I'm sure loads of people find that really really helpful. We've we've talked a lot, and do you know what, Aisha, I could talk to you for days about this and, <laughs> uh, because you know it's interesting how we cross over. Like before we had before we yes. started this podcast, we were talking about the fact that I've moved from England to Northern Ireland, 
And since I've moved, I never realized what it felt really to be like in a minority until I moved here. Mm. And my accent makes me a minority just. And the fact that I'm openly gay, which, you know, there's gay people over here, but it's politically uh, controversial, if you like. We've only just got, um, you know, the legalization of marriage only a couple of years ago. So it would be really interesting for me to experience life as a minority when I've experienced life with privilege. Does that make sense? I'm not proud of it, but Mm -hmm. actually it's been an eye opener. I'd like to talk about just next, before we kind of close this conversation, I'd like to talk really, and I know you get asked this a lot and I apologize to ask this from you again, but what what can school leaders um, and people who work in schools do more or less of um, to be better at what they do? So in the simplest terms, I think it's two tiered. So the first tier of this, I talk about this idea of the triple consciousness, but the first part is who are you behind your front door? Mm. That is the biggest piece of work a leader can do is hold up the mirror and be extremely honest about their structural advantage Mm. because that is impacting on their training, is impacting on their teaching, the way they deal with behavior incidents, the way in which they address parents and carers, because ultimately I am using my bias, my privilege, my lens to make decisions. So Mm. ultimately I have to grapple with who I am as an individual. And I'll give you a very, I know we're we're, we're, um, short for time, but something really, really powerful that happened is that um, I did an exercise with a group of girls in PSHE and we were talking and I gave them the story about the father and son who go out for a drive and unfortunately they meet a part in an accident. The father dies, the son survives, he gets to hospital and he needs an operation. Now the surgeon arrives and the surgeon says, I can't operate, that's my son. So I put the question to the group of girls and said, how can that be? And it was so interesting, the responses. Now, what I wanted them to say was, it's his mother. Because in that context, I wanted them to see the gender diversity and bias that was lacking within the um, health profession. But what I was faced with was a whole set of answers that I wasn't prepared for. Because even my bias in the activity hadn't opened my mind enough. So I had children saying, well, miss, as simple as they're in a same-sex relationship, or miss, that's the stepdad, miss, they're a foster carer, Um, miss, they're adopted. And even one particular young lady said, miss, I got the answer for you. The mum cheated and that's the biological daddy. <laughs> and but all of those things and yeah. you know, we laugh and we jest, but that was her yeah. lived experience. Yeah. Wow. And even though when I explained to her that wasn't the purpose of the activity and no, it's a woman, she was adamant, she was not willing to change her answer because she said, mm. No, understand, miss, we all come from different lenses. And so even with a question like that, which was about gender bias, the reality is her lived experience affected her lens affected the lens of all of those girls that I I was you know going through this activity with so when I say to you hold the mirror back to the first part of the point is we have to hold up our mirrors and look at our lenses because those things will impact on how we engage on any work on representation Mm. so that's the first part so as a leader hold up that mirror and be honest about your perspective yeah But the second part of it is about the work you do to genuinely embed inclusion as part of your culture. And there are a number of stages that you need to go through. Firstly, you need to audit. 
nobody likes an audit <laughs> but it's the only way you're really going to know what's happening in your organization and i mean audit everywhere from reception to the food you have in your menu to the the curriculum to the, the you know the diversity of your your teaching staff to your website audit everything with as many lenses as you can because that will give you a baseline understanding of what you're putting out the next stage is to allow yourself to kind of really ask people questions. So it's about surveying your children, surveying your parents, surveying each other, and really grappling with how people see the organization, even if you have an idea that your school is full of values and principles. Yeah. And then what you need to do is allow space for nuance. So to have that discovery. So I call it um, conversation cafes, but mm. allow conversations to happen, particularly around difficult uh, and controversial points in education. Get people to talk about how they feel about trans communities. Talk about how you feel about anti-racist practice. You know, even talk about how you feel about sex education and misogyny. Have all of these conversations with your children and have them with your parents and your staff because it will be so revealing. But you also need to put in checks and balances. So it's about doing your culture review. How often are you checking that the work you're starting is embedded, that it is impacting and it is changing the culture of your school? Because the only people that will be able to tell you are those who have the lived experience. Yeah. Talk to those who are affected and see if they feel the change, because that's important. And then finally, I would say it's accountability. Who's holding you to account? We have some very nice leadership teams who want to do all these initiatives, all these awards, but who's holding you, holding you to account for that? Who are you checking that against? Because you can't have the same people who are dishing out the operational strategy as the same people who are questioning you and checking you on the quality of what you're delivering. Yeah, definitely. That's amazing. And such, such powerful advice, stuff that I hadn't even thought of before. So I'm sure people who are listening to this will, there's loads to go on. And just um, before we finish, uh, that's something that you can offer, isn't it? As representation matters. Yeah, as so service. as representation matters, we, yeah, we coach schools through that journey and really handholding them through it to make sure yeah. it's truly embedded in their organisation. So how do they get in touch with you, Aisha? Is it they can go to your website, which is yeah, so reach out on the website, which is www.repmatters.co.uk. Or to be fair, I'm at the point now where if you just Google me. <laughs> I actually feel really proud that I actually come up. You Google Aisha Thomas and Rep, Rep Matters comes up. So you can do that. But equally, I'm on all of the socials. So kind of like your Twitter, LinkedIn, Instagram. I'm, I'm okay with a DM for a conversation. So not a problem. Yeah. So when we um, w when this episode is published, we'll put the links um, and the necessary information that people need to get in touch with you. Aisha, thank you so much for this conversation, this very, very powerful, important conversation. I really appreciate you. I appreciate your time and everything that you're doing. I appreciate your friendship and I hope that you are you go from strength to strength. And uh, yeah, everyone get in touch with Aisha. Check out her TED, uh, TEDx talk. Check out her documentary on the BBC. Can you get that on the iPlayer or is it on YouTube? It's on YouTube. Yeah. All of it's yeah. on YouTube, free of charge and easy to access. So, so important. Thank you so much again. And uh, keep in touch with the leaders team, won't you? I will indeed. Thank you for listening. I really appreciate everyone's time. Take care. Thank you so much. Bye. Bye.